Oh man, it's good to see you today. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're so glad to have you. I uh, hope you had a great 4th of July. I know a lot of folks, I mean a lot of folks, are taking a really long holiday weekend and that's real cool. You need to be with family, go be with people you love and people you can barely tolerate, whatever works for you. That's okay, man. We're in a series this summer in 1 Peter about being a believer in a non-believing culture. And we got to understand that we, we live in a time now where our culture has become increasingly more hostile towards us as followers of Christ. And Peter, 1 Peter has a strong word for us. And if this is your first time uh, here during the series or ever, kind of the thematic uh, understanding of this sermon series has been this, that being a believer in a non-believing culture requires a commitment to Jesus that surpasses any commitment of any person who is not a follower of Christ. I mean, if, if there's going to be a culture hostile to us, our commitment has to be greater than theirs. We have to surpass whatever commitment they may have. Ours has to be greater. And, and so we have seen so far in this series that we are chosen by God, that, that we uh, have our faith revealed when we suffer or face the hostility, that we are called to holiness, that we are to live as examples. Last week we saw that when we suffer it is for righteousness, and today we come uh, to the fourth chapter and, and we see that, that we suffer to glorify, that when we face this hostility, it is to bring glory uh, to God. And so uh, here's verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled or insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublemaking meddlesome. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this particular name. And so here's the thing in the message today that I hope you see is that facing a culture uh, hostile to you as a believer in Christ gives you an opportunity to bring glory to God. That if we're going to face a hostile culture, then it provides for you and I an opportunity for us to bring glory then to God. This so as I've shared with you already, Peter, Peter writes right before 64 AD, right in that period of time. He is writing to a group of believers who came from a Gentile background. Most likely they're in the area of what they called back then Asia Minor. Today we would call it Turkey. Uh, and he writes to them before 64 AD, because in 64 AD, the Emperor Nero began to systematically persecute Christians. And the persecution of believers in Christ became uh, the, the, the standard practice of the Roman government. Now, it doesn't mean that Christians hadn't already been persecuted from the time of Jesus. I mean, people who were followers of Christ felt persecution. Peter had himself. In fact, Peter has a unique authenticity in that uh, he, has, he had suffered. He had been beaten. Um, he'd been put in prison. There was a death sentence literally on his head. People wanted to put him to death. So he had an authenticity. He also had an authority because Jesus was as close to, I mean, Peter was as close to Jesus as anybody. I mean, Peter was the main guy in terms of closeness to Christ. He was it. And, and so Peter understood. He had authority. He had, he had an authenticity about him that allowed him to have influence. Now, at that time, these believers had come out of the Greco-Roman world, that Greece-Roman culture. As they were been pagans. They came to be fathers of Christ. 
And, you know, in doing so, they, they understood that they were leaving behind a certain lifestyle once they became fathers of Jesus. In that Greco-Roman world, it was based on paganism. There was a lot of immor- what we would understand even back then. They understood as believers just immorality, uh, a lot of things associated with paganism. So they would stop going to all the big theater things that they have because in the theater they would pay homage to the gods. They would participate in all sorts or pay homage to a, a real immoral lifestyle. They quit going to the chariot races because there was gambling and drinking. I mean, drunkenness. They quit going to the gladiator games, obviously, for, for reasons that are pretty obvious, to the slaughter and the butcher. They, they understood that they were to refrain from sex outside of marriage. They understood that drunkenness and carousing, all that they gave up. And because of that, the culture that they had once been a part of kind of looked down upon them. They frowned upon them. They, they, they saw these believers as a threat to their way of life. They saw these people as challenging the status quo, the culture that they had. And, and so we might understand that to a society built upon multiple religions, loyalty to the emperor, um, and a sensual and selfish lifestyle, uh, the followers of Christ seem strange. They just seem strange. And we can understand that, right? I mean, in our culture, if people are different, if they dress too differently, act too differently, if they kind of cluster a group together and go do things differently, we think them as strange also. And so that's normative. People do that. And in that day and age, they did kind of what they do in every period of time. If people seem strange to you, they treat them with hostility. And that's what happened to the followers of Christ. So when Peter writes this, uh, in verses 12 and 13, he has to them a word of comfort in this hostility. And he calls them the beloved. He's speaking very pastoral, beloved. And what he says to them is, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which proves to be really a testing. Now, the word fiery ordeal, the New American Standard is what we read up on the screen. If you have the NIV, you probably have the word painful trial. Uh, the word fiery ordeal, painful trial, comes from a word that means to burn. And burning is painful. If you've ever been burnt, that hurts. Few things are as painful as, as being burned. And, and so... It carries the idea, and some things it may carry the idea of agony of the trial experience, and it may, but it also carries the idea of cleansing and purifying. We saw from a few weeks back that um, the, the struggles, the hostility was an opportunity to purify their faith, like gold going through a fire. And in fact, what you see here is it talks about this fiery ordeal, this painfulness as, as a testing. Now, the idea of testing isn't testing to get you to fall or falter. It's not God dumping bad things on you to see if you're really there. The idea is simply this, that in your life committed to Christ, when you face hostility, the hostility that is placed upon you, the persecution, the suffering, whatever, provides an opportunity for your faith to be demonstrated as being real. It is a test that shows the validity. So this fiery ordeal is this validity of your faith. He says, do not think that it's strange it's the way it's always been. It's all that Peter ever knew. In fact, last week, and I began the message uh, reminding us that it may seem strange to us as Americans, but, but Jesus and the New Testament writers expected people to suffer for faith. In fact, I share this with you also. Suffering for his faith was all Peter ever knew. Once he became a follower of Christ, all he ever knew was to suffer and be persecuted for his faith in Jesus. He says, don't don't think it's strange. In fact, he says this. When you share or you have in common with the sufferings of Christ, 
keep on rejoicing. He looked at, at what was happening to them as sharing with something. The word share is to have in common. It's used in Acts if the, the churches, the people who were part of the church had all things in common. Uh, it, it, it comes from a Greek word, and whether you care about Greek or not, it's sometimes helpful. It comes from a Greek word, koinonia. Back in the, the 80s, I remember when churches would start, uh, they were naming themselves after words in the Greek. So you had Agape Church and Maranatha Church, and you would have Koinonia Churches, which means uh, there was one church called Koinonia Fellowship, which literally means fellowship, fellowship, because Koinonia means fellowship. It's the idea of sharing, partaking together. And he says, so when you suffer, you are partaking with the suffering of Christ. It doesn't mean you're suffering the same way he did, though soon, right after he wrote this book, this letter, Christians who begin to be crucified by Nero, some of them even lit on fire when they were crucified. They would literally have a fiery ordeal. But he's not even talking about that. It is the act of identification. When they suffered, they were identifying with Jesus. When, when we experience baptism, uh, we are identifying with Christ. Next Sunday night, uh, we're going to have baptism. I walk over here because the baptistry is over here. And so next Sunday night at 6 o'clock, come on, we're going to baptize, what, 10, 12 people, something like that? 10 right now? And we may pick up a few more along the way, you know, and we're going to baptize. And it's an act of identification with Jesus. And, and, and also, afterwards, we're having this great fellowship, so come be a part of that. We're going to share together. We're going to fellowship. We're going to share. We're going to experience baptism. It's a coming together. And that's what it kind of means. It's just identifying with people. It's just sharing together in Christ's suffering. He says, you are to keep on rejoicing. Once you're a follower of Christ, you rejoice, but you keep on rejoicing. Not that you're happy about the suffering, but because you realize that the reason people are treating you this way is because of your faith in Jesus. And because you have faith in Jesus, you should always rejoice. In fact, this is what Peter says. Keep on rejoicing because at the revealing of his glory, of the revealing of the glory of Jesus when he comes back. We've kind of seen this a couple of times already. When he returns and he settles all debts and the understanding is that his kingdom is complete and we might understand this, that we're going to spend eternity in heaven. You know, that kind of, that's our understanding. You're going to rejoice with exultation. I'm sure your joy is going to overflow. You're going to look back and say, so I suffered a little bit on this life. It wasn't much because I am with Christ and I have an eternity of joy. When I was in seventh grade, see, when I was in seventh grade the first time, I was 12, uh, I was only there once, so, and uh, seeing if you were awake, and so that, that's when you got to start playing football for your school. Now, before that, you played YMCA football or Pop Warner. I played YMCA, and it was fun, but when you entered into school, it was big time then. You know, even seventh grade, I played in the school system, and in a school through high school, it's big time, big, big, big in Texas, and you start practicing, and it's August, and it's 100 degrees, the humidity is like 120. I mean, it's just brutal. And there's 100 guys going out. And this isn't like Pop Warner and YMCA where your daddies are coaching and your mama's out there making sure nothing happens. This, and so it's brutal. It is hard. It is, it is harsh. And guys are dropping left and right. And, and, and you're just, this is, listen, you're 12 years old and you've never hurt more in your life than this moment. This week, the first week of practice. And, and the coaches would come say, guys, listen, you know, keep at it, keep at it, don't give up. And I remember Coach Centeno. He would say, guys, I know it's hard now. And some of you think like you want to quit. But don't quit because one day you're going to look back and you're going to be so thankful that you never quit at this moment. Ten years later, I played my last game in college. Senior year, all of it's over. There's no more football left to play. There's no more to play. <laughs> my body won't let me anyways. And I remember it's over and I'm heading home, you know, never to play again. And I thought back to seventh grade with Coach Centeno. And I thought he was right. 
I'm so glad I never quit because I don't regret one single moment of doing that. Now, here's the thing. I'm not comparing heaven with that. But what I want you to see is in our human experience, we understand that there are times that things are difficult, that when we endure them, down the line, we look back and say, I'm glad we endured it because it was worth it. Here's the thing. We have eternity with Christ glorifying God in his kingdom in heaven. The suffering you endure is worth it. Because you spend eternity with him. And here's the thing. So rejoice. Not that you're suffering. But rejoice because your faith is evident. They're coming after you because you have faith. They're hostile towards you. Why? Because you have faith. So here's the thing. If we suffer in any way. Because we are a follower of Christ. We should rejoice. Our faith in Christ is evident. Do you get that? If, if people come after you simply because of Jesus, rejoice. Not because they're coming after you, but because your faith is so strong. Your faith is so real. That they know you're a follower of Christ. So through the word of encouragement and comfort, Peter then gives a word of warning. Not to warn us off of something that's a danger, but to warn us of what's going to happen. He says, so if... If they revile or insult you because of the name of Christ. Now, the, the word is kind of important. It's, uh, um, in Greek, they have what's called these conditional sentences, different classifications of conditional sentences. But they condition, if this happens, that happens. And some of them are meant to express what is going to happen is true. And so here's, here what it means is this. Instead of if, if you just put the word since in there. Since they are going to insult you. That's what it's saying. Since you will be insulted... Because of the name of Christ. It's going to happen. We've talked about that two or three sermons already. You are blessed. You're, you're in a state of blessedness. Now, last week, I spent a great deal of time talking about blessed. So if you weren't here last week and you don't totally get it, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It's, it's a good message anyway. You want to hear it. If my mom were alive, she says, she says it's the best message I ever preached. My mom said every message was the best message that I ever preached. My mom just thought I did a wonderful job. And, and so, but it'll help you understand that, that sense of what it means to be blessed. You're blessed. And here's why. Here's why. This is cool. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this, this, that's a diff- in the Greek, it's a difficult verse, but in New American Standard, which I read from, in the New International Version, which a lot of you have at home, you read from that, you have it on your iPad, smartphone, it says it the same way. And so, this word spirit should be capitalized. If your version doesn't have it capitalized, it, it, it's kind of a little different, but it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of glory and of God. Now, the word glory and God are connected together, so it's really the same thing. The Holy Spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You have the glory of God. Just fantastic. If anybody knew about the Holy Spirit, it was Jesus. I mean, it was Peter. Well, Jesus too, but Peter. And, and, and before, he, before he ascended, Peter and, and the apostles were with Jesus, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He knew the Holy Spirit. And then in, in Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost, and they're praying, hanging around, and the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit hits Peter, and he stands up and preaches this message, and 3,000 people were saved. And Peter understood the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter oftentimes would go to groups of people who became followers of Christ, and the apostles didn't really know about them, to see if they had the Holy Spirit or not. Because the Holy Spirit is the mark of our salvation. He says, you have the Holy Spirit of God 
resting on you. It's a phenomenal thing. Think about it. In all of this stuff going on, in all of the hostility, in a culture that is just going after Jesus, Peter says, hey, 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 the Holy Spirit rests on you. You're good to go. So if you suffer the insults, the Holy Spirit's there. You're blessed. Now, he did give a warning in verse 15. He said, don't suffer for these reasons. And, and he lists four things, three of them grouped together. Don't suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Now, if you're suffering because you did wrong things, that doesn't count. I mean, sometimes people suffer. If, listen, you've ever met people that say, oh, why is this happening to me? You know, why, why, you know, why, am, why am I going to jail? Because you broke the law. That doesn't count. Why is my health so bad? Because you spent all your life drinking and doing drugs. That's not on God. It's not the same kind of suffering. Doesn't mean you don't need Jesus. Doesn't mean you don't trust him. Doesn't mean you don't ask him. But it's not what we're talking about. Or it says, if you're a troublesome meddler or a busybody. And this this describes a person who is suffering in the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture. Because they're critical and antagonistic and they're condemning. In other words, it speaks of a Christian person. Normally a woman. A Christian person. I'm just kidding. Could be anybody. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I add? That was not in the other two messages. I felt led by the Holy Spirit to add it in here. I don't know why. I blame him. If I'm persecuted for that, it ain't going to work. I'm blaming God. But you're judging, and so you're a jerk. And if you're a jerk and you feel persecution, it doesn't, it's not the same thing. I've been doing this almost 39 years. And September is my 39th year of ministry. And all the churches, except for this church, okay, and to make sure this church it doesn't apply to yet. But, uh, until the next church you go to, then it'll apply to you. But this church, there's always been those few people that just feel like they just sit back and judge everybody. Now, now they condemn that lifestyle, that person. They're just judging, judging, judging. And they have so much animosity in their heart that they're a jerk. And nobody likes them. Nor should they. He's not talking about that. That describes you and people don't like you this, for good reason. No, he's saying to people insults you. This is what he says in verse 16. And it's just, it's just phenom- it's a phenomenal verse. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, he says, but bring glory to God in this name. Now, the word Christian is used only three times in all the New Testament. We use it all the time. I mean, on the course of a day, I'll use it a bunch. If someone says, you know, how would you describe yourself? Christian. It's just caught me. But back then, Christian was a word, it was a derogatory term. And the word Christian is of Christ, one of Christ. People say it means a little, little Christ. It doesn't mean a little Christ. It means of Christ. And, and it's the idea that they would use it to slander someone. So in, in Acts 11, 26, it's used the first time. And it says the, the believers, the disciples in Antioch were called Christians for the first time. So the other people in Antioch would make fun of them by calling them Christian. In Acts 26, 28, Paul is with King Agrippa, trying to win him to the Lord. And Agrippa says, Paul, you think in so little bit of a time, you can make me become a Christian, which is a term of slander. Now here, Peter says, he's just talked about people insulting you. So when they insult you by calling you a Christian, that's what it means. By the way, Baptist was also a term of insult originally. I mean, people use the term Baptist and, and, and to, to be an insult and critical of them. And, you know, and, and, and I don't think of that term at all as being an insult. 
I mean, if you want a name that's insulting, Methodist, that's an insulting name. I'm just kidding. I'm just just kidding. If you come from a Methodist background, I'm just joking with you. Baptists and Methodists joke all the time. There are a lot more of us, so it's funnier, evidently. Here's the thing. If they slander you, don't be ashamed. What are you ashamed of? He says, here's the thing. In this name, what name? The name Christian, in this name. Used only three times in the New Testament. Third time here with Peter. In this name. Glorify God. In the moment of their slandering, glorify God. Do you know the reason we exist in humans is to bring glory to God? Is to have this relationship with God that brings glory to God. As a follower of Christ, what am I to do? I am to glorify God. The main way I glorify God, by the way, is helping people to come to Jesus. The greatest glory we ever give God is when we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and receive salvation. If you want to glorify God, help people come to Jesus. That glorifies God. But in the midst of whatever you're going through, Live your life in such a way. Make sure your speech is such that you do not return the hostility, but instead in what you do, because you were a follower of Christ and that evidence is given, you glorify God. So if we suffer in any way because we were a follower of Christ, we should rejoice. God is glorified in that suffering. God is glorified in that suffering. That's what we're to do. Now, here's this culture that is hostile to Jesus. And they've always been hostile to Jesus. From the moment Jesus' ministry started, in fact, really, from the moment of his birth, they were trying to kill him. Somebody was. And the more hostility they directed towards the followers of Christ, the more people became a follower of Christ. It's amazing. 64 AD, and I've told you this already, but I'm going to say it again, it's important. Nero began persecuting Christians. It was the official policy of Rome for 260 years. It ended in 260 years because Rome had more Christians than pagans. And the emperor became a Christian. Through all of that persecution, Christianity just grew. Even today, and and I've shared this with you before several times, for the last 70 years, they have persecuted believers, the church, Christians in China. And by the year 2030, there will be more Christians in China than any country in the world, including ours. Why? Hostility just drives people to Jesus. Think of this. How ironic (laughs) that a culture hostile to Jesus drives people to Jesus. And in their hostility, they glorify God as well. That's what happens. Cultures that are hostile to Jesus... They end up driving people to Jesus. I can't explain it. They just do it. And in that process, God is glorified. So we live in a culture today that's becoming hostile. And and it's kind of strange because most Americans, over 70%, identify as Christians. And so it's not like they're all hostile. I mean, it's it's a small group of people somewhere, some who identify as Christians, bringing about this hostility. And, and, And back in Peter's day, Christianity, you know, it didn't exist at first. I mean, it it came into being with Christ, and then it grew, and they were hostile as Christianity began to grow. But now, you know, America, our culture, it started by people who were Christians coming to worship. They came over here to worship. So America has always had a strong Christian influence, and now we're getting this hostility. And this is kind of what's strange. People are trying to leverage Jesus, they always have, to justify their hostility. And we've seen that for decades. So you, you, you have extremist groups. And I don't care you know, where you are, what, what, 
kind of way you look at your life, there's always people who leverage Jesus for things that Jesus opposes. So you could come over here, and for decades there were groups that, that they hated other cultures, they hated certain ethnicities, they hated certain languages. You know, there were people who would go to church on Sunday, but the night before they were burning other churches. Think about the stupidity and evil of that. People who would be in church one day burned churches the other night, and they leveraged Jesus as an excuse for their evil. Crazy. But you go to the other extreme. And there are people who live lives that are directly opposite of what God tells us to do. And they want to live their life in opposition to God. And then they want to leverage, they want to co-opt Jesus and take Jesus and say, well, this loving, tolerant Jesus says it's okay that I live this way. And so they, they blame Jesus for what they do. And the whole process, all of this stuff, all of these cultures that are actually hostile to people and hostile to Christians are trying to leverage Jesus. And it's crazy. I mean, it, let me recommend to you four books that you should read. They're really good books. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's their names. And go read about Jesus. And so they came to Jesus. And they were always trying to leverage Jesus. You realize that. Sometimes it was, it was to, so they could trap him, to get him to take a side and issue to trap him. Sometimes they wanted him to support them. And so they'd come. And so they came to Jesus about politics. And, and, and you know, it was the Jews, because he was in a Jewish world. He was Jewish. He was dealing with the Jewish people and the Greco-Roman culture. He was Jewish. And so they came and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? That's a big political issue. So Jesus said, bring me a coin. They brought him a coin. He said, whose picture's on it? They said, well, it's Caesar's. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you give to God what is God. And he was through with politics. Let me share something with you. Jesus never got involved in politics ever, and he still doesn't get involved in politics Ever. We just drag him into it. We drag him into it. Jesus is above all of that slime. He doesn't. And about society. There were important issues in society, like divorce, like today. So there were some in the Jewish world that said you should be able to get a divorce for any reason. And some said, no, only if there's infidelity. So they came to Jesus. Said, Tell me about divorce, Jesus. What do you think? Remember, Moses commanded that we get a divorce. And Jesus said, Moses didn't command it. It was because of your sinful hearts that he allows you to do it. He said, go back to Genesis. What does it say? One man, one woman for life. That's what God wants. We're through. Oh, what about religion? Oh, religion is always a good su subject to discuss. So they tried to get Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Let's have a religious conversation. What's the greatest commandment? Come on, tell us what you think. Jesus looked at them and said, I'll tell you this. Here it is. The most important thing. Love God. Oh, there's a second thing. Love others as much as you love yourself. Love God. Love others. That's it. We're through. That was it. They never leveraged Jesus for anything. In fact, Jesus came, and here's what Jesus said. He said, I want you to love people that are even your enemies. People that hate your guts. You love them. And I want you to forgive people. I don't care how many times they wrong you. I don't care what they do. There ain't never no excuse to never not forgive people. Go figure that out, how many negatives I used. Four. It works out. And then he said this. Listen, if a Roman, a Roman soldier asked you to carry his pack one mile, which he could do, you just carry it a second mile. And if someone insults you, turn the other cheek, let him insult you again. Do to people, treat people the way you want to be treated. In fact, here's the thing. You love God, love others. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. And for this, they killed Jesus. That's why they killed him. And right before they killed him, he had 11 guys left. Judas had gone to betray him. And in Matthew, excuse me, in John 15, 18, here's what he said. He said, guys, listen to me. 
If they hate you, know this. It's because they hated me first. So here's the thing. You and I are called to follow Jesus. And for this, you may suffer. And you may face a hostile culture. But will you glorify God when suffering and hostility come? Will you glorify God when the world hates you for Jesus? Began the message reminding us that in facing a culture that is hostile to us, we have the opportunity to glorify God, and you will have it. Listen, it could be at your place of work. It could be in your family. It could be among friends. It may be because of social issues. It may be because of the life you live in Christ. It may be over politics, who knows. But if you seek to honor God, and you seek to follow Jesus, you will suffer. Not, not like Peter did. And then not like necessarily the people did. But it still will be real to you. And so here's the thing. When that moment comes, what are you going to do? I want to encourage you to rejoice. And praise God. Not that you suffer but because you have faith that threatens the culture. Just be thankful that you have enough faith in your life that people are hostile to you because of it. And praise God. And, and do this. Knowing what you're going to face, and you can probably think of the people or the place or the incidents or the circumstance. You can see that. Do this. Make a commitment right now that God, whatever happens, Whatever comes, I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to glorify you. Today, you can make that commitment, the commitment to glorify God no matter what. You can make the commitment that you will praise God for your faith. And up here, there'll be some folks, men and women, if you want to come and talk to one, you, you can do that. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, so here's what I'm going to invite you to do. It seems strange, but I want you to come and join a group of people who are going to face the hostility of trusting Christ and give your life to Jesus. Trust Jesus to be your Savior. And experience the hostility that comes with it. It'll be the greatest joy of your life. If you have someone that you know is close in your family, your friends, that they're struggling, we'll pray with you. So if you want to come up and say, David, or one of the guys or gals, pray, we'll pray. We'll pray with you. If you want to join our church, you can. I, I don't know what God wants you to do. Here's what I know. He wants you to walk out of this building today and glorify him. So, Father, we thank you for what you give to us. And it's a difficult calling to some degree, I know. And it's a culture that we don't always understand why it's hostility, but it's there. So help us, Father. To rejoice that we have faith worth persecuting. We have faith worth someone being hostile towards. We praise you. And help us, Father, see above all else in all of this. To be sure that by our words and by our actions, we glorify you. Because nothing else matters. 
And in so doing, people will be driven to Jesus and trust him as their Savior. So we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit that rests upon us, and for the glory of you, God. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front.